Hey you, thanks for tuning into the Waiting List Podcast. I'm Long Long. I'm Daniel. And I'm Jacqueline. And we are three watch friends with a healthy obsession for watches. So sit back and relax with us while we chat with collectors, industry giants, and share some good vibes. Welcome to the podcast, guys. And I don't want to blow our own trumpet here, but we've kind of blown it out of the park a little bit because we've somehow managed to get the one and only Mr. Wilhelm Schmidt on the Waiting List podcast as our guest for the next hour. It's our pleasure to welcome you to the show, Wilhelm. Thanks a lot, Daniel. Pleasure to be with you. Thanks for inviting me. Right. So we won't waste any time. We're going to go straight into it. Um, you've been at the helm of a Langenzerner for many years and successfully, I might add. What characteristics do you personally think are the most critical in becoming a leader? Uh, look, it's a long story and it's difficult to boil it down to just a few words. Um, I think empathy is a very much underrated um, discipline that as a good CEO, you should, you should have. Um, Empathy, uh, authenticity, uh, you know, people, I, I believe that people like if you know who you are and if you are at least to a large extent predictable. Um, I'm a big product man. So whatever I did in my life, um, I always emphasized on really understanding what is it that we produce. Um, and and I, I, would, I would be unable to sell something which I can't touch with my hands, I admit. That's my weakness. Um, so I, I think the combination of understanding what you do, understanding your team, understanding your clients and treat everybody with respect and empathy at least worked for me quite well in the last, what, 40 years. I must say, you know, from somebody that's followed the brand for a considerable amount of time, I think there's a lot of consistency in your leadership. And I was just wondered, are there any habits of daily routines that you stick to that continue to drive you? I mean, where do you even get the drive to for the next step every single time when you've been there for so long? It's, you know, because there's, there's never a boring day in my life, I can assure you. It's because it's a complex company. You know, we're small, but it's everything from product development uh, through the manufacturing, through all the things you have to do as a proper businessman to the boutiques that we now operate around the world uh, with all the different legislations. So it's not like um, there's a moment where you think, okay, job done. I don't know what is happening next. At least in the last 13 years, I never, I never had that moment. Um, there are a few things that, that I really like. We have basically every morning, nine o'clock, a little, uh, sometimes only 10 minutes if, if needed a bit longer exco meeting so I see all my I see all my colleagues uh, and we just update ourselves as I said sometimes only 10 minutes sometimes half an hour um, it was born out of the necessity of the COVID crisis and it turned out to be a great instrument to make sure that everybody's aware of what's happening within the company um, and once a quarter I go through the factory, which is, you know, really important for me. I want to understand what's happening there. So I would say these two are really vital for me because they keep me uh, in, in, in link with, uh, you know, the heartbeat of my company. Okay. And over your career at Anlangenzerner, how do you think you've 
personally developed? Like when you look back at how you were when you started and how where you are now, how have you developed? I would say I had a lot more hair, and most of it was <laughs> blonde. <laughs> I can proudly say I didn't gain weight, but uh, you know, if I go back to the first photos, that was uh, the sixth of December, twenty ten, um, and there are photos of Jerome Lambert and myself. Um, you know, that was my sort of introduction. Yeah, unfortunately, you can see that life is taking a toll on you and um, on Jerome as well, I have to say. So the two of us looked a lot younger back then. Um, I always believe, you know, I'm, I'm, I believe I'm good in self-reflection, but I'm not necessarily very good in, in um, analyzing it. I think there are other people that probably could say a lot more about me and how I am developed over the last 13 years it's it's nothing it's nothing really that i spend a lot of time uh to think about uh, that's a Daniel. that's a very humble answer um long long i think you've got a question i was wondering because you came from a car background so you in the car industry are there any skills that you have brought over from there that you feel are helpful with your role now in the watch industry I believe that the car industry, you know, but basically these are very different industries. You know, the car industry is all about industrialization. And at least what we do is what we do is very much the opposite. However, um, I work for BMW, as you may know, and I think the German car manufacturer in particular, they are really good in running the brand consistency across uh, consistent across the planet. So it doesn't matter where you are, if you enter a BMW um, dealership or if you buy a BMW, you know, it, it is exactly the same car. It's exactly the same experience that you would have if you buy it somewhere else. So the consistency of uh, operating a global brand is for sure something which, which, which I took and bought um, as I moved to uh, the watch industry and to Alange und Söhne. I, I was always a watch collector, <clears throat> so I was always keen on watches. I was always watches, keen on cars. That's my, that's my life. That's the weak spots. <clears throat> uh, but nothing prepares you um, if you enter a company like Alange und Söhne. So, in the first three months after I arrived, um, I went into the manufacturing with the morning shift. And, you know, I, I went from department to department as we build the watches, just to understand what we do there. And I cannot, I cannot be grateful enough to my colleagues uh, that witnessed all my inability to only do what they were doing um, and, and the greatness to share with me their secrets. Uh, to today, um, I am really happy that I did that because Otherwise, I wouldn't understand uh, what our Langmonsoon is all about. Right. So over your career, you've launched quite a few um, models, including the Odysseus, you know, just coming to, coming to my mind, the, the Datagraph Lumen, just so many models. But which one has been the highlight for you? Which one really like resonates and leaves a memory in your heart? Quite a few, um, and it's always hard to boil it down to just one watch because it's a little bit like the question for your favorite child. 
Um, uh, however, I have a sweet spot for the data graph up and down um, for a very simple reason. You know, I arrived in December 2010, and then my my first proper in those days called SIH8. Remember, they took care in January, so the first one was January 2011. And I was about six weeks on board, so I, I was I was more a passenger. I was for sure not sitting in the in the driver's seat. Um, but that was different in 2012, and gave me great insight into how the developer watch. And I was quite keen to understand. And the data graph up and down was the watch that we launched. So I love chronographs, and I really love this work. Other than that, the grand complication. That was quite spectacular as we launched the watch. You know, how often can you launch the most complicated wristwatch ever produced in Germany? Um, there are the Lumen models that are really great. There are some Handwerkskunst models that I think are so outstanding. It's absolutely fascinating. Um, and of course, I'm proud. You know that the launch of the Odysseus uh, went into went into my time here with Lang und Söhne because you don't you don't introduce a whole watch family, a whole new watch family that often. So I would say that's uh, these three watches start to grab up and down the grand complication, the two minute repeater, you know the, the Zeitwerk decimal repeater and the Richard Lange minute repeater and the Odysseus. I think well and I should mention the Lange one Tobion perpetual calendar because I think it epitomizes almost everything our Lange and Zune stand for. I would say these six watches, they are probably the highlights. And I'm sure I forgot one. If I think about it, I will spend the next hour. Just uh, um, that's always the problem if you have to focus. Um, no, but, but I can say I have a great team um, and, and I have some really creative people. So best part of my job is seeing how great ideas develop into good prototypes and then into fantastic watches for customers. And to okay. see that whole process from A to Z is probably the one thing that I like most on my job. Okay. Right, Long Long, I think you've got a question. Along the lines of design and the families of watches that you have, like that Alange has released during your time there, how much creative freedom do you guys actually have being part of Richmond? Um, do you get to decide, um, for example, I feel like now we need a sports watch or is there a protocol where they kind of look at the whole family of the, like the portfolio and all the other brands and then they tell you roughly the direction to go? No. <clears throat> Look, it's, it's, it's one of the big myths that people believe a family company can do what they want to do. And uh, if you're part of a, um, a listed company, you can't. That's, I think that's all nonsense. Good brands do what is in line with their DNA, what is in line with the expectation that have their clients about that specific uh, brand. These are the strong brands. If you try to influence that from a portfolio uh, point of view, you will harm the brand. Um, and I can proudly say, you know, if it is about watches, you know, if, if they're great, compliment. If they're not great, 
we fail. We cannot blame anybody else but us because it's done entirely A to Z within the, the, the walls here that we have in Glashütteth. There is, there is no interference whatsoever from Lishmore. Okay. 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 So, I mean, one of the watches that you brought in recently in recent years is the sports watch, is the stainless steel Odysseus. And for traditionalists yeah. of Elang and Zerna, you know, that was quite a big move because you've well, you've made everything in precious metal, right? And then suddenly that was, aside from the stainless steel Langer one, which is like a, a unicorn, um, yeah. Odysseus was, you know, your first foray doing stainless steel sports watch. Was that mainly because of, you know, market demand in the fact that, you know, the market is basically so strong for sports watch that kind of forces lang and Cerner's hand to to go into that market as well no look it's first of all this is is not about stainless steel because we also have a white gold version uh, and we have a titanium version and now we just launched a chronograph so obviously we will develop a family uh with that very uh recognizable face you know the date and the day indication um and and the push buttons to to operate either the day date or in the chronograph the chronograph and the day date functions um no you know it's 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 even mr bloomblind uh, was thinking about launching a watch because there were customers that requested a watch for what i think is the best time uh, in a year it's the weekends and it's the holidays and he said, look, we love your watches, but we can't wear any of them during these most precious times because, you know, they are precious metal and they usually, and that's more important, they have a leather strap. Um, and of course, they are only three ATM waterproof. Um, I think that is more the driving force than um, simply looking at the market and, and, and see, you know, what sells well. If you If you look at our production capacity hmm. um, you can clearly see that you know there are huge restrictions um, and that's why you know we can't produce um, as many Odysseus as customer one that's why the waiting list unfortunately is so long but the moment we would produce more Odysseus we would at the same time have to reduce the longer one which is also in short supply um, so we would move the gap around. Um, now, the Odysseus was a clear answer to the request of our customers to have a, a, a watch for the weekend and for vacation, more than just a business preposition. Right. Okay. So, uh, and, and, and sorry, Daniel, the one thing which people tend to forget is all the other families are still done in precious metal only. And I always say that, you know, we could have made our life a lot easier by just launching a steel watch in each and every family. And trust me, they would have gone through the roof. <laughs> yeah. Commercially, yeah. Uh, you know, so much easier than, than, than what we did, but it would have not been what people expect from us. Uh, so going the extra mile, really thinking it through, um, and even if it's a hard and uh, um, 
a tough way, but you know that, that's 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 what we expect from ourselves. So that's why we don't do the obvious and easy. We do what is expected and in line with 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 our requirements on ourselves and on our langonzun. Okay, well that kind of nicely brings me on to my next question because I'm sure, like you said, um, one of the easiest ways options would have made at least to test the market would have to make a stainless steel langa one. And that would have like yeah. sort of like hotcakes, but uh, as a CEO, you're paid to make decisions, and sometimes they aren't always perfect. In hindsight, for my next question, I'd like to ask whether there's, whether there's been one question that one one decision, sorry, you've made that in hindsight you would have changed over your realm at Langenzerner. Uh, it's it's probably, and it's not ignorance. But I'm not a person that looks back. Okay. Um, you know, I I tried to understand all the implications before we, and I emphasize on the word we, make a decision. Um, and, and then we stick to that decision. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes in hindsight, because you gained knowledge and information that you didn't have as you had to do the decision, you know, does that really help? It probably doesn't. And on top of that, isn't it funny? Sometimes decisions that look very silly turned out to be very good to, to then again look very silly and then to again look very good. Um, I'm pretty sure, and I'll give you an example. Um, you know, the first Lange ones in steel, customers had to buy that at the platinum price. And Daniel, don't forget in the 90s, we didn't have that emphasis on resale values and all that. Mm -hmm. So people said, I don't care. I pay platinum price for stainless steel watch. And trust me, a lot of a lot of other customers thought, Jesus, these guys are really stupid. You know, in hindsight, we know that was not a stupid decision. Um, so that's, you know, you never know. You just have to 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 gather information, uh, listen to everybody, and and then and then make a decision and go on. Okay. Um, I'd like to also hear your opinion on the watch industry as a whole, so not just uh, Alanga. And what do you think the biggest challenges as an industry it faces in the short to midterm? Look, the, the biggest challenge is, uh, is is one that we as an industry share. Um, you know, wristwatch um, has outlived its usefulness long ago. You don't need the watch today to understand what the time is because the time is everywhere. Um, so as an industry, we have to ensure that people understand why it is good to have a, wrist, a wristwatch, a mechanical wristwatch, and maybe then even... Um, a very fine mechanical wristwatch. And it's our job to inform um, the next generation and the young generation about what do we do and why it is important that this will stay. Um, and I believe that's a hard job, you know, in times where the, the attention span is rather short. Um, you explain that it may take up to 10 years to train somebody to 
produce enamel dials. So there is, you know, there is a lot of story that you need to tell to make the next generation aware of how beautiful and how important craftsmanship is, and that you know the 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 sustainability of a watch. Um, the, the, the longevity of a watch will very likely survive its owner and probably even the following. Um, I think that's the biggest challenge for the industry that I can see. Okay, so um, in light of that, how do you regard smartwatches? Do you think it's a positive thing for the industry? Look, at least it shows or, and, and, and tell people that the property, the real estate on the wrist is good for something. Um, and, and we all know that the smartwatches, these devices, um, I'm pretty sure they do not exist in 10, 15 years from now on, because they will be substituted by um, glasses, um, T-shirts, God knows what, because at the end, um, the information that you can see and read out of that smartwatch are rather limited. Reminds me on the areas when the mobile phones got smaller and smaller until you couldn't use them. And then first SMS and then WhatsApp and, uh, you know, all the, um, the social media activity started. And then watch uh, the, the telephones got bigger again. So I think, you know, overall, I believe smartwatches are good because they tell you what the wrist is for. Um, they will, pretty sure they will, they will uh, go away, they will be substituted by something else, which then is good because then the wrist is free again for a proper watch. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and talking about watches, I know you mentioned that you're, you're a collector, you were a collector, you know, before uh, you took the job at A. Lang & Zerner. What do you collect or what did you collect at the time and how has your collection progressed? Um, you know, there is a time logically before um, I took the job um, and, and um, after today I collect Alango and Zöne watches because, you know, <laughs> like a boy in a candy store. I mean, why should I collect anything else if I can get Alango and Zöne watches? Um, you know, I, 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 I bought um, and kept watches. I still have about, I think, 25 watches in the safe back home. Um, I had everything from Jesse Lecoultre to Audemars Piguet to Patek Philippe. Um, I even admit I had a, two Rolex. Um, but, you know, it's, it's also had a Langer and Söhne very early on. In 97, I bought my first and only one. Um, so that's how the collection was. Today, I really emphasize on Alang and Zöne, you know, for obvious reasons. Um, why should I go somewhere else? <laughs> yeah, it's a bit difficult when you're the CEO to, to rock something else. <laughs> you know, I always look at other watches and then I look at my watches and that's not arrogant, but that's, you know, I look at them and then, you know, the whole story behind it, you know, when the first ideas were born, so it's almost like an emotional attachment to these watches. And therefore, you know, why should I buy another watch but this? Mm. Okay. Right. Long, long. Please come in. I actually have two questions, but it kind of goes back to your view with the watch industry in general. I think with 
a lot of watch brands when they first release something new. So for example, the Odysseus, there's always a lot of backlash because people are not used to the new design. And then more recently, I think there has been a lot of drama online about bundling and reselling and just shortage of watches in general. Um, as a CEO, how do you navigate situations like this? Do you just let them pass or do you actively try to perhaps like fix the situation? Look, there are, there are, there are three questions. First of all, um, you, uh, I just believe that every strong design um, and every strong brand has follower and hater. You know, you can't have a sharp profile in your design language and please everybody. I think that is very impossible. Um, you know, I can understand that people say, I don't like Odysseus. That's fine, you know, because we can produce five and a half thousand watches, for God's sake. So I can't produce a watch that makes everybody happy. And if so, I couldn't supply. Um, what... I or we would always fight is it's not an Alang Zuna because it is through and through the movement decoration, the ideas that went into it. And I said before, you know, the whole the whole attempt to bring up the watch and not go the shortcut route and bring every watch uh, in every watch family as a stainless steel watch out, that already shows very clearly it's an Alange on Zerner watch. Now, that's the first part of your question. So you have to live with the controversy. And I even believe it is important because everything that is not controversial usually has no longevity. Um, if something is only liked or only hated, it usually will not age very well. The second part is um, the shortage of watches in general. And then, of course, of some brands and some uh, models in particular. Um, as you might know, we changed our distribution system um, and moved more towards direct um, contact with our customers. So we have a lot more boutiques today than we ever had before. And I would say a large proportion of the watches end up at risks that we know because they've been to the boutique we have a personal relationship with them. Now, the challenge right now is there were a lot of good customers that used to buy uh, from their AD. And that AD doesn't have Lange und Söhne anymore. Uh, and unfortunately, we don't have the history of that AD with their customer. So here we are pretty blind because if somebody comes in uh, he or she will tell us, I am a customer, uh, but, you know, we have no evidence, we have no history. Um, and to distinguish and to ensure that not too many watches end up at the wrong wrist, um, and I don't mean that disrespectful, but, you know, if the whole intention is, I want that watch because I can sell it next week, um, and earn a bit of money, then this is not the motivation for us uh, to recruit every single year and train between 15 and 20 young people to become watchmaker. You know, our business model is we rely on clients that collect watches. Um, 
Now we are in transition from the one distribution model to the next distribution model, and that might take time. Um, I, I always invite anybody, uh, and I really mean that, and I say that probably for the last 18 months, uh, to help me come up with a better system, which is fair, transparent, measurable, and which you can apply globally than the one we have. And I fully understand the frustrations that some people have. I absolutely sympathize with the anger that even might develop. Um, but, you know, every system has its weaknesses. There is no perfect system. And so far, the system that we chose um, was good in many regards. And you don't find too many of our very hot watches uh, in, in the reseller market. Um, I have a follow-up question. So it's hypothetical, but say somebody has never bought something directly from boutique and they have like maybe collected up to six watches and paid a premium outside. And then they go to the AD or they go directly to the boutique and they now say, Hey, I'm a loyal customer. I don't mind paying premium. So I've got like, I've gone out of my way and I've bought a six. Are these the kind of customers that you guys would categorize as loyal and therefore immediately they will fall into a certain category? Or is this a whole process where you have to start a relationship from scratch? It's it's again, you know, um, how do you how do you how do you get evidence of what they say is true? I don't say the only liar out there, but trust me, after all these years. There isn't a story that I haven't heard. Um, yeah. And, and, and the stories are even better. So more desperate people want to have certain watches. So um, I, I am afraid, you know, because that's the human nature. Um, as I said, invitation is open. Show me a better system, which you mm -hmm. can um, I can guarantee you, I bought six watches uh, here and there, and they're still in the safe, and here are the numbers. Okay. Is not an evidence and will not protect you uh, to then give watches to people that will sell them the next week. Um, okay. That's true. Right. Okay. Well, i got to say, Wilhelm, thank you for answering that as candidly as you could. Yeah. Like, uh, you didn't duck yeah. out of that, so... I'm I'm very grateful that you you took the question on like head headstrong <laughs> and and I can tell everybody listening other way I didn't give the questions to Wilhelm before this interview because Wilhelm wanted to be able to answer these as genuinely as possible without preparation. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, let me say one thing, which you know, and again, um, I just that's just advice. But if you go into, but first of all. Basically, all our watches are in short supply. So if you enter any boutique right now around the world, you will see very little stock. Mm. So we don't need to bundle watches because we can't sell the watches that people think we bundle with. So why would we do that? But again, to get a history, you know, to, to get to know each other, to start the relationship, and unfortunately, you know, it will develop into something more than just a business relationship, but we'll start with a business relationship. And again, invitations open, come up, show me a system, 
that is better, fair, um, global, um, uh, globally measurable, and 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 globally um, controllable than than the one we have. Right. So I think uh, Wilhelm's put it to the audience there. If anybody's got any great yeah. ideas, send them to us, right? And we will make sure yeah, they a, get to Wilhelm. Yeah. I, yeah, I feel terrible asking you these questions, but I feel like I know this is what the listeners are thinking. And then this is the only channel or way that it can get passed on. So, I mean, if anyone's listening, like, please write in. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, I'm going to move on now. Um, there was a story floating in the past around Thierry Stern, you know, visiting the Alang Zerner boutique during one trade show and seeing the chronograph movement being produced uh, by Alang Zerner. And the result of that visit was that Patek then invested in producing their own in-house chronograph movement. I don't know, like I said, whether it's true or not, but this question is in the same vein. There's been a rise in interest of the independent brands and arguably a higher interest and appreciation of what it actually means to be a finely finished watch because of these independent brands. And has this changed, has this changed, sorry, put pressure on you as a manufacturer of movements to keep raising standards? And if so, how will you rise to that particular challenge when it's already like so difficult to, it's like you said, you don't make a lot of watches um, already. So when you have to push up the standard even higher, what what does that mean? Yeah, that's it. It starts with um, your own training um, approach, and trust me, there isn't a single day in the life of Glesute and the manufacturer where we do not coach and train people. Um, if you ever come to visit us here, you will recognize how many people we have here working in a finissage, um, in engraving, uh, working on a mile. And that excludes right now and on purpose, the watchmaker, which assemble the watch. Um, I, you know, and that's not from me, that's a quote from a big American collector who once said, that we are probably the biggest independent and probably the smallest global brand. Um, so we have quite a unique position that we can play with the independent on their home turf, but we are a global brand. You know, we have about 35 boutiques by now. So we have a global representation, um, but at the same time, um, you know, we do not industrialize our movements. They are really assembled by watchmaker. And you need a real watchmaker to assemble them because the construction design means there's a lot of adjustments. So it's not like the movement design is chosen in a way that, you know, everybody with a bit of training can assemble the watch. That's not what we emphasize on. Um, so does the, are the independents helpful? It's a bit of a chicken and egg question, to be honest. Um, I'm not sure what was first. For sure, they're raising the bar. And competition, if it is about quality, is always good. Um, however, I always say, and that's again not my quote, it's Tony De Haas who said, it's 
it, it is a challenge to produce one watch, but it's doable. But to replicate that watch 100 times, 200 times over a period of five or 10 years and still maintain the quality, that's a very different ball game. Mm. Um, and I think that's where we are very strong. Um, but I'm a big fan of the Indies, as you know. Um, and I always look at it and specifically the, the finish they can apply. Um, and it's, you know, I make sure, we make sure that our people know about that because it's never bad to feed a bit of, you know, the breath of the competition in your neck. Mm. And we can't compare ourselves with, you know, the more industrialized luxurious brand. Basically, any brand that produces above 10,000 watches is industrialized because I know for sure that you can't do what we do or what an independent does um, and, 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 and move the, mum, the numbers to 10,000. It's, you know, you don't have the manpower. That, that still leaves a healthy gap in terms of production numbers from Lang and Zerner from where you are now. I think you're like, is it about 5,000 pieces a year? So, about, potentially... yeah, you know, yeah, it will go up and down, uh, you know, Daniel, because sometimes we produce less and, and we definitely move away from a lot of the more simple watches because we need the capacity to uh, produce more complex watches. One need to understand a watchmaker cannot work on every watch. You know, a watchmaker, uh, by definition, is trained on one, maybe two movements, but usually only on one movement. If we move him or her to another movement, there's a lot of training involved. So efficiency will suffer uh, immediately. Um, and, and then you have watchmaking capacity in the different fields of complexity. Um, you know, some people are just more talented, more dedicated, and they usually go right through the rings and end up with the very complicated watches, the chronographs, the tourbillons, the minute repeater, the perpetual calendars. But, you know, some people say, I don't want that, you know, and then they, they move up to the Lange 1 or to the Odysseus, um, and then everybody coming fresh from our own school, you know, after a year and a year and a half, they're going to start working on the 1815 up and down or the Saxonia thin. So decoration is perfect, but of course the complexity of the movement um, is, is less than those of the next categories. So that's why we have to shift. That's why I said, you know, more Odysseus immediately would mean less Langevin, which is in short supply. So that's not a great idea. Uh, more chronographs would mean less sideback. Not a clever idea because both watches are in short supply. And that's how you, you, you balance uh, your capacity and ensure that you, know, you don't become too much dependent on a single watch. At least that's our intention. So our distribution is very balanced in, in, in Europe, um, America, Asia, and Middle East. Uh, but also our portfolio, our watch portfolio is very balanced. So we do not rely on one single watch or on one single family. Okay. Right. Well, I'm on to my last question now, and that went really quickly. Um, but this is the last question of the main interview, guys. Don't worry. There's still a bit more. But 
What is the vision of a Lang and Zerner in the next three to five years? What is it you hope to achieve? Look, there's a lot of things where we are in transition. Um, I said it, you know, distribution from a wholesale operated a business model to a boutique external and internal. That's a huge move. Um, in about two, three weeks, we will have the soft opening of our new flagship store in, uh, in New York at Madison Avenue. Um, and there are more projects in the pipeline that will keep us definitely busy over the next three, four years. And then if I look down the road, I can see the Lange 2. That's the old uh, uh, production facility, which is now under renovation. That again is a two-year project because it's a, it's a protected monument. So everything we do and change, we have to... Uh, to get approved, uh, but it's, you know, via a bridge linked to the new manufacturing and we need more space. So we need to upgrade that as quickly as possible and integrate it into the Lange 4. So construction, building and infrastructure is something which will definitely keep us busy. Um, our, our school and our um, you know, we enlarged the, the, the different uh, uh, traineeships that we offer. Um, that's also something which really keeps us very busy. Um, and then, you know, there are some things which I can't share um, that we need today to be ready in five years and in four years, which will also keep the team um, and, and the manufacturer pretty busy. Uh, I think, I think, you know, you will still clearly see Alang und Zune as you know it in five years' time. But you will also see a lot of things have changed. Um, because some are already changing or it's in progress. And there's more which I cannot unveil right now that's in the pipeline. Oh, Wilhelm, you're such a tease. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> Right. Well, we now go on to the reverso round, but this is somewhat different to our usual one because, you know, as the audience knows, we sent out uh, a question saying, you know, if you have any questions and we would uh, select some that you could ask uh, Wilhelm. And so we've selected two here. The first one is, will you, and if not, why not, establish an Enlangenzerner museum? Um, we will not because there is already a, um, a, a watch museum here in Glashütte, as you probably know, which is a good reflection of the history of watches um, in Glashütte. So, you know, you would just compete with something which is already there. That's, that's the first part to the answer. And the second part to the answer is also quite clear. We have so many topics on our agenda that deserve our attention, that deserve our resources uh, to ensure the growth and the well-being of the company in the future, um, that at the moment we would not have the spare capacity to work on something uh, which do then call the Alang Söhne Museum. And therefore, you know, in the foreseeable future, that's not in our plan. Okay. Right, that's very honest. Um, and the second question is a bit of a lighthearted one. 
what is the worst pronunciation of Enlangenzerne that you've heard? <laughs> <laughs> that was actually a question. I've, I've heard a few launch. Somebody was referring to launch, and I had really, it took me a long time to understand that he meant Langer. Um, so I think launch, launch was probably the word, um, you know, that people are not familiar with the German Ö, the, um, the OE. Um, so that Zone is quite often, but that's not a bad pronunciation, just because we use letters that no other uses. Uh, but launch was probably the worst I've heard in the 13 years. <laughs> and uh, did you did you have the heart to correct him on the spot? Uh, no, I'm I'm always diplomatic if it comes <laughs> to that. Because I'll be, you know, I mean, I speak German, English, and a bit of Dutch and a bit of Danish. Um, and you know, I I would never be arrogant enough to, to if they ask me, um, I would help them pronouncing it correctly, but I wouldn't do it proactively. Okay, such 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 a gentleman, Wilhelm. <laughs> it's, yeah, look, it's as I said, I do mistakes, and if I recognize mistakes, I'm happy to ask for correction. Uh, but I, I, you know, these people love what we do, and um, it's not their mistake that we have a very complicated, at least you know, in specifically Asian for Asian languages. We have a very difficult to pronounce name. Mm. Right. Okay. We now go on to the final round, which is the pump pusher round. Um, a couple of questions, a few questions about just general topics. Number one, um, as mentioned, you're a big car guy. Um, in your collection of cars, which one is your favorite? Hmm. That's very easy. It's the least expensive car that I have, which is a little MGB Roadster but it's now with me for the last 42 years and it's exactly as old as me. That's why I bought it at the age of 17. So you can make the math how old I am. Um, and, you know, I, 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 I would sell any car of my collection, but not this one. Is it simply because of the emotional attachment? It is like this. And if you have a car for 42 years and I can remember as I bought it, I can remember as I restored it, I can remember the, you know, it was my only car for 12 years. I was driving it in winter time with a bag of concrete in the trunk to get a bit more pressure on the wheels because it was spinning quite easily. Uh, now it's, it's, it's that car and me have endless stories. So even if, you know, the least valuable by miles, it's the one that I would never sell. And do you still drive it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, with me. Ah, okay. Right. And then... It's, it's still in my garage. It's still, you know, I still drive it regularly. My son already said, uh, th that's my tri-car, which is good because, you know, that's, if anything uh, is damaged, that's easy to repair and so on and so forth. But no, 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 that's the car for sure. As I said, the least valuable, but the highest emotional value. Hmm. Okay. Is there a car out there that you don't own, but you would love to own? It's, you know, the biggest weakness of any collector is that you're never happy with what you have. 
you always want what you do not have. Um, and there are a lot of cars out there that I would love to own. But, uh, you know, cars, unlike watches, um, they deserve quite a bit of space. So I, I had the commitment with uh, my beloved wife, Yvonne, that I will not have more than six cars. <laughs> right. So anytime, anytime I want a new one, one of the six has to go. <laughs> okay. And when was the last time that actually happened? Uh, last week. <laughs> <laughs> But it's not dry and sealed yet, so, but it's, it, it, it looks very positive. Um, okay. I think I will have a car within the next four weeks. And, you know, we also struck a deal around which car I give us a trade-in. So it looks good. Okay, good luck on that. I hope it goes through. It, it will. It just takes a bit of time. Hmm. <clears throat> okay. Uh, different tact here. Is there one person, dead or alive, that you would love to have a conversation with? Yeah, Mr. Bloomline. Okay. I never met him. I never met him, unfortunately. Uh, and and you know he did so many great things. I would have loved to have a conversation with him. I would have loved listening to his advice. I really mean that. I had the pleasure to to experience Mr. Langer for a long time, um, but, but you know Mr. Bloomline passed away in two thousand and one. Uh, so I obviously never met him. That, that would be for sure a person that I would love to have a coffee with. Okay. And what would you actually ask him? What would be the burning question that, you know, you'd ask? I would, I would, I would you know, I would ask him about, you know, how he came to the ideas for Alang and Zuna, what he think is what he believes is instrumental uh, where would he see the fields of improvement? Where would he believe that we need to expand our our watch portfolio? Um, so I would really use him as a sparing partner to what we have in a pipeline and see whether he would share our views or not. Mm, okay, good, good answer. Right, next one. Is there anything that keeps you up at night? Yeah, and I think I mentioned it before. You know, in about one month's time, um, we'll have again um, 18 young people and they come with uh, their siblings and friends and parents. Um, and then they, you know, that's the new class of watchmaker apprenticeship um, that's entering. Now, you know, these, these children or young adults, they are between 16 and 20 years old. Then they go to three years of hard work before they get their exams. Then it needs another year or two before they're a really proper watchmaker. And, and then for the rest of their life, they are watchmaker. Then, you know, what do you do with a watchmaker if we don't do the job properly and there's no demand for our watches? Um, so it is, I see it with, with, with pride, but I also feel um, the pressure on our shoulders because we have to ensure that there's always enough work for these people. You know, that our watches are always in demand, that they can make a living out of the job that they have, which, you know, um, we help them to get. So that's a big responsibility. 
Okay. Well, that this isn't a question like that I had written down, but on top of that, like how many people are actually at Langenzerner? I think we're about eight hundred by now. Oh wow. Okay. So that's quite that's a very high responsibility there. Yeah. 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 But it's, as I said, you know, specifically the young ones, because you know, for the rest of the life, they're watchmaker or engraver or finisseurs. As our job to ensure that there's always enough work for them. That's mm. really, you know, that's the one thing that I always say. That's the one thing we mustn't get wrong. Wow. Okay. Okay. The last question, the very last question. Uh, one piece of advice you'd actually tell your younger self? Always follow your passion. Okay. If you if you if you develop a passion for something, uh, you can't go wrong. Um, passion is what will bring the difference between good and enough and excellence, which will make the difference between work and I really enjoyed my day. Um, you know, anything you don't do out of passion, at least for me, is, can develop quickly into an uphill battle. Right. And you probably will never be really good in that. Mm. Okay. Well, those are some, uh, that's a great piece of advice for everyone listening. We do have some younger listeners listening. So there you have it from Wilhelm. Uh, it's been an absolute <laughs> pleasure to have you on this show. Thank for you the so last much. Hour yeah. or so. And thank you for your time, especially because I know you're so busy. And uh, I look forward to seeing you in September at Watches and Wonders. Fantastic. I'll be there. Um, and I can't wait being there. You know, I haven't been to Shanghai for a while, so great to be back. Yeah, and uh, thank you again for for being so candid in your answers and addressing them head on. Um, yeah, you take care, and we'll speak again soon. I'm sure. Wonderful. The two of you as well. Have a lovely evening. See you soon. Thank you. Okay. Bye. 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 As always, thank you for listening to the waiting list podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. And if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to reach out to us at The Waiting List Podcast on Instagram or via our private accounts. We'll see you on the next one. Bye. Bye. Bye.